It's episode 46 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the show, I have two guests, Chris Risden and Patrick Quattlebaum. They are authors of the new book, Orchestrating Experiences, Collaborative Design for Complexity. We're going to discuss the challenges and opportunities that arise when managing design at massive scale. Chris, Patrick, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Great to, great to talk with you. Oh, I've got so many questions for you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. I've been really enjoying the new book. Um, let's see. Let me start with you, Chris. Uh, you are Director of Design at GetAround. Yeah. That is a, that is a service I'm familiar with. Uh, when I do get back to San Francisco, in fact, just uh, the last time I was there, my brother and I just literally like walked down the street, got in somebody's car, and drove away. Uh, right out of yeah, the city. It's, kind of, <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's weird, isn't it, when you first do it? <laughs> um, uh, so what's the team like? What, what do you got there? Yeah, the team is, I like to call it small but mighty uh, and <laughs> growing. Um, so I joined uh, the end of October of last year, and there were two designers, a brand mm-hmm. designer and a product designer. And so far, it's been about six months, and we've grown to about six people and plan to add. And that encompasses... Um, brand designers, product designers, or UX designers, and a service designer. And we'll be adding more to that. That's interesting. Like I work with a bunch of startups, and I guess Get Around would still be considered a startup, uh, uh, I would imagine. Um, but there's this always like I'm talking to founders, and there's always this inflection point where like, well, we got a couple of designers, and they're kind of feeling like a bottleneck, and it feels like we just need somebody with more experience to kind of lead them. And like that happens. I have this conversation almost once a week. It sounds like you were the person that stepped in at this point to say like, all right. Time for us to get serious. Well, I, I mean, it, I, I'm thankful that they bought what I was selling when I interviewed. <laughs> so, so I give them the credit for saying that it's time to get serious, and then hopefully they just needed to find find me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, and Patrick, uh, as Studio PQ, what do you guys focus on? Well, uh, smaller than Chris and team, uh, Studio PQ is kind of my own little personal imprint. I uh, after. Uh, joining Capital One with the rest of Adaptive Path and spending a couple of years uh, building up the service design capability, I uh, decided to move back east and uh, just kind of do my own thing for a while. Uh, and I've been consulting with clients um, all over the U.S. and uh, have some things uh, brewing. Uh, I don't know when this podcast will go live, but I'm not. I can't announce it today. But something's happening very soon where I'll. Uh, it'll be more than just me uh, in a couple of months. Nice. That's exciting. That sounds good. Well, uh, good for you going out on your own. That's a big step. Can feel a little intimidating when you're sort of uh, considering, do, you know, leaving the corporate job to do that. So, uh, uh, a lot of um, a lot of respect for for taking that step. You mentioned uh, Adaptive Path just then, uh, and that is the thing that all three of us have in common, that uh, we all spent time there. Although, I, uh, with the exception of the fact that I was on the board, um, I, uh, we didn't overlap uh, because you guys both sort of started much later than, than when I was around. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I remember knowing a little bit of when you, you left, but I can't totally remember. But uh, I joined in 2010. Mm-hmm. I originally joined um, our there was an Austin satellite studio, Austin, Texas satellite studio. And I joined there and Patrick, I'm not sure. Was it that same year or the next year, like in 2011 that you, you joined 2012, actually right at the beginning of the, uh, of the year is out of the San Francisco studio. Yeah. So adaptive path started, 
uh, way back in like in 2001 when we were practicing user experience uh, and kind of as a nascent discipline, I, I would say back then, uh, that we defined mostly as information architecture and user research. And that had a lot to do with where the market was at those days. Like 2001, as you remember, is kind of the right at the kind of thud and collapse of the dot-com boom, you know? And, yeah. um, and what we found, and when we started it, it was just seven of us, uh, as, as like a, a bunch of practitioners that just kind of wanted to collaborate and do some stuff together. And what we found was that there was all this work that to be had, uh, that was like under the radar of all of the giant design firms at the time. You know, there was like the Razorfish and like, uh, right. uh, all of those, those huge firms that would never like look at a project that wasn't a half a million dollars or something like that. And <laughs> none of that stuff existed anymore because everybody's, you know, budgets were way scaled back and things like that. And what we found was that there were all these giant companies that had made massive websites that were literally 20,000 HTML files on a server. And no way to manage it, no way, and just like chaos, right? Like it had grown from like the one webmaster person into, well, we have a team now, but like we've just been throwing FTPing files onto a server. And, and, and it was like this big shift into content management systems that required this, uh, this, this idea of information architecture and relooking at it. And we took a very user centered approach. That was like the bread and butter for the first years. Um, we kind of migrated that into, interaction design around the kind of web 2.0 Ajax years, you know, a few years later. Uh, and that's where mm -hmm. I kind of spun off uh, with the product work that we were doing there and went to Google and, and did all of that. Um, but it was always interesting to me to see where then adaptive path kind of moved on even from there into this notion of service design, this idea that companies infuses every aspect of how they touch the customer and talk to the customer and interact with the customer. And that uh, very few companies have the, the capacity to do that consistently and well. And so that when Adaptive Path got acquired by Capital One, you know, like from the outside, like why is a credit card company buying us a design agency? But it makes a lot of sense in this context of like, here's a huge organization that has many, many different ways they talk to a customer and uh, no consistency across that experience. And I bet that's sort of where you guys sort of formulated a lot of what I found in this book about trying to manage that kind of scale and complexity. It, it it kind of is an echo of of two thousand the two thousand one period just at a, a another <clears throat> higher level of Zoom which is instead of pages on websites it's touch points in the the overall customer experience and that um, a lot of organizations um, when they added in web channels and digital channels it's not it's not as if the other channels went away um, and so they're they're faced with managing and connecting all of those um, disparate touch points across different channels at the same time of spinning up innovation teams, which are uh, kind of laser focused on adding even more things to, uh, to what customers can interact with, but aren't um, typically asked to rationalize that to fit with the other, the other pieces. And so um, my background originally was in information architecture, and I am fascinated by the architectural challenges that come with what we talk about in the book in terms of connecting those dots and also with service design, um, not just connecting that on, in the experience for the customer, but connecting it to operations and creating a healthier dialogue between those who focus on experience and those who focus on uh, efficiency and 
internal processes and how to balance um, and make the proper trade-offs to, ha- to deliver the best experiences, but also um, a sustainable set of operations that um, the, they can consistently um, operate and, um, and have trust that uh, they're not leaning too far to uh, leanness and too far towards um, uh, blue sky innovations. So They're trying to find that sweet spot in between. Mm, yeah. So let's that. <laughs> let, let me talk about the experience I'm having right now because uh, I think it, it is the quintessential example of serv- of service design and all of the stuff that you guys are talking about in your book. I am an immigrant uh, buying property in a foreign country and uh and getting a mortgage that is like partially paid in one currency and paid in another currency and as you can imagine I, uh, we are the edge case to the edge case of this entire organization that we're dealing with and i keep imagining and in fact i did this i sat down with my with my partner heather and i'm like this is this is a thing we do in my industry and and tried to draw like a, a visualization of our emotional journey through all of this <laughs> and, <laughs> It's been it's been insane. But one of the things that I keep noticing is the difference uh, in just the policies that are explained to me or the language that's being used or the um, uh, all just all of the various things that I would try to hold on to as part of my experience of kind of going through what is a tremendously emotional uh, process. Uh, coming differently via the emails that I get from one clearly automated source versus the person that I'm talking to the phone versus the packet that I get in the mail. Uh, and it's been crazy in its inconsistency. And I think this is the experience that lots of people have with larger organizations. And I think that's why you see like customer satisfaction being tremendously low on things like cable companies and mobile phone providers and probably mortgage companies and things like that. And so some of the things that you were just talking about are ways that we as, as user experience or service design professionals want to try to alleviate some of that. It just seems to me, frankly, completely overwhelming. And I wonder, how do you even start to think about that? Well, I think um, a couple of things is, I in some ways, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, the, the core components, like you talked about information architecture and you talked about interaction design, uh, if we're going beyond a website, we're going beyond documentation that's that's there, it's still about information and it's still about how you interact with it. Whether you are on the phone with a customer experience agent, you're there because there needs to be some sort of information exchange. And then the phone is, as, as a medium is, is going to dictate some of the interactions. And so that's the same sort of fundamental way you can look at it when you're thinking about somebody on a website trying to do some sort of information exchange, search for something or find something, or if you're in a store and you're trying to do it, it's just that it feels more complicated because there are more moving parts, right? You've you've expanded the scope and that's why we thought through, you know, introducing, you know, tools. And I mean, we as in broad, not not in the book specifically, but we as, as an industry, you know, whether that is experience maps and ecosystem maps or storyboards to help show things moving across just um, different touch points. We started to do that because it is more complicated because there's more moving parts. But at the core, it's still sort of the the, the bones are still sort of the same of what you're trying to do. Uh, and that was a large part of what we saw was like, well, what we could do here for this digital product that you could call UX, you know, it's still human centered and it's still about information. It's still about the interactions and having good interactions. And then when you do something that's more sort of a service design thing you know, that isn't necessarily based on technology and is dealing with operational or offline type of elements, 
it's still also kind of about traversing some, you know, traversing or navigating some path through our information exchanges and understanding what the interactions are that have them. So it's more complicated and that makes it harder to make sure you're, you're, you're maintaining the empathy that you need to have that human centeredness. When you go back to the UX that you, you you're talking about in 2001 and it was about usability and it was about user research and information architecture, that's that idea of understanding those needs. It's still about that. It's just that we have more moving parts that mm. make it, you know, make maintaining that empathy a little more complicated. I also think you probably have much higher expectations on the user side, on the consumer side of things than perhaps we had in the past, simply because digital tools tend to make people feel a lot more empowered. I think that's a factor. Yes. And, uh, and also, if you compare it to 2001, I know it's interesting. Actually, I was about to say one thing, but I we I have this debate with designers here in Atlanta all the time and online about whether or not things are better or worse uh, with digital experiences than they were in the past. <laughs> yeah. Whether functionality um, or has the industry kind of gone away from some of the things that we were applying ten years ago, and it's probably another podcast. But uh, <laughs> I, I would say that that. Yes, I think expectations are higher. I think the more that people have been expected to do the jobs that companies used to do for them, there's not only that feeling of empowerment in self-service, but there's also the expectation of, you should be helping me do this. Um, And if if you're someone who say of the generation that the three of us are, you remember when some of the things that we do online now were done by employees and companies. And um, there's, you know, there's a great book called Shadow Work that's all about the outsourcing of, of jobs to consumers. Mm. Um, you think we have very high expectations that if we are doing more of the work ourselves, then we should be equipped uh, by these companies to, to do that. And when we're not given what we need, that's becoming a greater and greater point of comparison when comparing different product or, or service providers and the, the data and surveys and performance of companies who invest in, in experience, you know, that, that kind of backs that up. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Like the quintessential example would be back, you know, 20 years ago, you'd call a travel agent and tell them what you want and you would hear them typing. <laughs> over the phone, right? And and like and and now of course we do the typing and the companies that are succeeding are the ones that are frankly eliminating the typing and just making it the the, the easiest possible experience. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I and mean, you see that I mean and, and that's everything, you know, all of a sudden you go to the airport and you're checking yourself in. Someone right. else's right. you're at a kiosk and you're, you know, typing the things that they would type and and you go to a hotel and if it's self everything goes to that self-service and to, to piggyback what you're saying there's there's a couple of things that happen there. One is you have higher expectations because you're actually expecting them to do more of the work. And hopefully your goal is to make that not feel like that and make it feel kind of to Patrick's point empowered. And then I think the other thing that changes as far as those expectations from many years ago is, is, uh, people, consumers, users, whatever, uh, always eventually see the man behind the curtain. Like they become more savvy and understand mm-hmm. how things work. And that's going to then up their expectations because they have a little bit of knowledge about how, how it, this moment, this interaction, this touch point has been delivered to them. And I think then they, when they know that, then they can have higher expectations for, for it because they kind of understand that, you know, it wouldn't be too hard to make this a little bit better. I kind of know how it works. 
And so I can actually have an expectation that, you know, where you're coming from right now, this experience that I'm having uh, could be better. Yeah, yeah. I have a bunch of questions about the overall framework that you guys have. But before we do that, I want to take just a quick break uh, and talk about one of our sponsors uh, for the show. Uh, support for Presentable comes from WeTransfer. So WeTransfer has 40 million people that use the product every day to send and receive files. Or sorry, every month, 40 million people send and receive files with, through WeTransfer. Uh, and they don't even require sign-in. You just upload, send a file, and get back to whatever it is you make. Uh, since day one, WeTransfer has devoted 30% of the ad space that supports the product to showcasing creative people from around the world, from musicians to photographers, illustrators, and even podcasters like me. So in that spirit, they have uh, asked me to just skip the rest of the ad and get right back to the show. Um, WeTransfer.com. You make WeTransfer. So thanks to them for supporting Presentable and all of Relay FM. All right. So you guys, in the book, you talk about uh, kind of four big, almost like a, an evolution of, of sorts, from channels to touch points to ecosystems to journeys. And I was wondering if you could just give give us kind of a broad overview of what you mean by all of that. Well, yeah, the first the first section of the book is anyone who's worked in uh, a company of even a moderate size knows that you hear uh, these words in different forms from different people. And my 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 experience and Chris's and I think what we've seen in our work is that um, you hear the same words, but people are meaning different things by it. Um, right. And some of the words like channel actually do have multiple meanings within uh, an organization. So the, the goal of the first section was to. Um, to really give a perspective on um, what may be some unifying um, unifying concepts uh, that if you could get the organization, regardless of what tribe you're part of, design, process, branding, marketing, et cetera, um, we need to start to, um, even if you change the names from channel to something else, you, you need to start having a common label for some very um, important foundational concepts that will help um, both connect what you um, provide customers um, and and also start to look beyond what you um, just their direct direct interactions with your your products and services and thinking about their larger context. So um, you know channels are, are really about aligning around, um, what uh, what are the the main ways that you interact with customers and being more specific than saying uh, the digital channel mm. um, and uh, and and even mobile. So, for example, if you have multiple apps, each of those really are a a, a point of uh, entry point for multiple interactions a, a person can have with you. Um, and that you can start to then look at those individual channels and deconstruct them into touch points, which that's a word that definitely means very different things and different um, methodologies. From, from, from our um, point of view, um, while you can look at um, any intangible interaction as being a quote-unquote touch point, um, it's helpful to... Uh, to really inventory what are all the things that you've made within different channels that help someone do something. Um, so for example, if you're, if you're in one, in, in one of those apps, um, say like a, a Lyft or Uber app, 
what are features of a product, our touch points in a, in a journey and a larger experience that you, you could have. Um, and then the concepts of, of, of ecosystem um, is to really think more broadly. Um, and, and ecosystem is another word people will talk about their cloud ecosystem, their um, uh, partner ecosystem. What we explore in it is taking some of the um, concepts of, of mapping ecologies and ecosystems and thinking about what uh, really about the context of people and the and your products and services and how you have an ecosystem of people, processes, technologies, locations, uh, on and on, your different products and services, and um, the customer or the person that you're trying to, to serve is bringing with them an entire world as well of, of people that they interact with, of the other products and services they interact with, the context of where they may interact with those, what they're trying to accomplish, um, uh, and uh, that you really need to think about these worlds colliding and, and mm. start to find uh, new ways to connect those dots with, uh, with who you're um, designing for. And then lastly, with Journey, you know, this is a, a concept that is very common now in organizations uh, around thinking in journeys. What we try to, to talk about in that is, is that you know, one way you can think about journeys is we create these pathways for customers um, like onboarding. Um, if you're the organization, um, but that's a very, that's kind of one way to think about a journey and you could operate, operationalize that, but there's a bigger journey that the customer is always on. Um, and so thinking, uh, I think Brandon Shower, who we all know from Adaptive Path had mm -hmm. an article recently about, you know, zooming out one level from the thing that you're designing to think about the larger context. And so when we're thinking about journeys, we're, what we're advising in the book is to zoom out from just the obvious, this is where you interact with the product and service and think about at least a journey higher than that. So um, if you are responsible at a, an organization for you know, looking at how to provide a mortgage to mm -hmm. somebody about home buying. Um, look at that journey. You're going you're gonna to find better ways to integrate with that, that context and also um, hopefully unlock new opportunities to add value in ways that may be beyond the product or service that you're, you're offering today. Right. So like in the mortgage context, you might, the journey might consider everything from like looking at listings to finding an agent to finding movers and uh, buying a sofa, right? That's all part of the journey. And here's where we fit in, in this slice. Are there other slices that we might, that might be adjacent uh, where we could provide value as well? Yeah, I remember one time uh, I met Joe Gebbia, who's one of the founders of Airbnb, and he showed me this like very central hallway that they had at their headquarters in San Francisco, where they had an entire journey of a trip illustrated in storyboards, and these were beautifully illustrated by uh, uh, by a graphic novelist, um, and they had this work done based on tons and tons of research that they did, and on one wall was the journey of somebody imagining their favorite vacation and going all the way through it until they're getting home and sharing photos with friends. 
And on the other wall was two people thinking, you know what? We could make a little extra money with our house. And going all the way through to they are like, you know, a super host or whatever they call them now. And having that illustrate. And this is a place where employees are walking every day, you know, coming through and seeing like. And, and the reality was there were probably 25 of these storyboards on each wall. And at the time that I was meeting with them, maybe four or five of them were done in the app, you know, or in their, in their overall offering. And so I find that, that interesting, that, that concept of a journey really that you, that you envision for your audience or multiple audiences as being part of this much larger ecosystem. Yes. And they, as you know, as they've, uh, over the last year plus, they've, you know, publicized that they're, their focus is more and more on the uh, not just the stay but the trip, um, and uh, that's this that's that's the example of you know zooming out one more level. And so they in their my my in working with them, the feeling I I, I had was they were always looking at that larger context to inspire the core service they have traditionally provided. And then it just became natural to then strategically segue into, um, uh, by the time they, they started to look at all the different opportunities, they could really start to construct a larger journey of looking at the trip, um, where the stay is now part of it. One of the things that I was so impressed with is that, and I think this ties in a little bit with your concept that you guys are talking about around the North Star, but it is this idea of how do we essentially from the top down of an organization relentlessly communicate what our overall vision is and how everybody's participation or their daily activities are really connecting to that as a way to instill this in a culture. Uh, what do you What do you guys think on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And it, it kind of follows on from the, the Airbnb storyboarding example. You know, yeah. we hope that we can lower silos through kind of the approach that we outline in this book, but you're never going to completely, um, eliminate them because there's a point when people need to go back to their their function their domain and, and actually make something happen whether that's you know improve the call center experience or improve some sort of operational or in-store experience or improve the, dig- the experience of the digital products uh-huh. but what happens is those groups often know very well their domain they understand the universe of the digital product or they understand the universe of the customer when they're calling um the call center but they often lack how that ties into a greater whole or a greater purpose. And so that North Star, however you want to communicate it, um, whether it's through the, the, the animator, the, the storyboard artist that, that Airbnb got or however you might want to do it, eventually when people sort of go with their, their marching orders, they, you want them to be you know mixing metaphors. You want them to be following that same North Star, even if they're in different boats. Or you want them to be singing from the same hymn sheet, you know, whatever that is, whatever your metaphor is. But but if you have that, then they can sort of make decisions on their own when they have to go back into their hopefully slightly lower silos, but they still have to kind of go into those operational areas. But then they actually actually have a, a shared understanding of not just what's going to make a great call center experience or what's going to make a great app experience, but, you know, how those are actually informed by by that 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 whole um, experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have other examples of, of perhaps how the, that, that communication might happen through like incredibly large organizations or success stories or anything. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of North star, I mean, there's different pieces to it. So, um, you know, what I've found is in addition to the storytelling 
Well, I should, I should rephrase that. You need to tell the story in different ways. So for some people, there are um, this, this, this um, power of a narrative and showing uh, from a, a, either a customer or an employee's perspective is extremely powerful and, you know, best practice. And in addition to just doing, um, say, static storyboards, uh, you know, seeing everything from videos to uh, recently for a customer, uh, my team, I brought in a team and we made a choose your own adventure book because, uh, what we were showing was that uh, as an omni-channel experience that people will be switching and moving across different channels at different times. And so we, it, we made an artifact to say, okay, you are the customer, follow whatever path you want. You can see how it works. Um, and that was pretty powerful. Now, putting a book on someone's table that is not um, – say, drawn too much to narrative can seem to them feel um, uh, more like an academic exercise or, or not serious. Um, right, right. Uh, that's less and less. So, uh, you know, there's other things that we, we mentioned in the book that are part of that North Star, for example, you know, service blueprints of, of something that is looks a little more left-brained, but it's definitely a, a design. It's a prototype of not just what is our... Um, vision working from experience backwards, but, you know, how might we arrange people, process, platforms, policies to deliver such a future, which gives some confidence that there's some, there's some uh, meat beneath the, the, what can seem to be some just storytelling at, at, you know, at the top. Uh, And then also providing, you know, some rigor behind uh, rationale behind some of the stories we're telling and kind of making it traceable to, um, to insights. Like uh, you mentioned earlier about Airbnb and it being research backed. So, you know, I would, I, I know in my work, what I, um, do is make sure that if someone wants to start at a storyboard level and drill down to what, what do we know that makes this, that we're confident that this is the future we should be aiming at, that they are able to follow that breadcrumb back to some insights that, um, that support it. The traceability is incredibly, incredibly important um, to get some people behind that. How do we do that? Uh, so, uh, I, I love that idea, and I have seen some systems, um, literally like software, enterprise software level stuff, where all the user research is cataloged and tagged and um, easy, easy to uh, to access and find, and, and you can put together sort of cases by pulling together all these pieces and stuff. But, but I think so few organizations have that kind of stuff. I just, have you guys, uh, do you have experience like building out systems like that or, or just other, are there more, I don't know, procedural social ways of, of tying it back to observations that some smaller team has made that are relevant to the larger organization? I just, I think there's so much opportunity there. I just haven't seen very many examples of it. Yeah, it is really hard in that sort of like repository sense where what you were talking about, like it's all tagged and there. I've been a part of, of doing some of that and mm-hmm. the systems can be really good, but then, you know, it is essentially a CMS where people have to participate in it and you have to know it's there. Well, I've nobody does that. More of a, <laughs> yeah, no, one, no one can do it because all of a sudden it's a thing that needs to be administered. So right. when you're talking about that social procedural thing, um, I really feel like, uh, and I think we'd, we'd have a, a philosophy of this, is, you know, the more you can 
you know, you're maybe not going to have the the database that is like, oh, we have this research nugget that's there. And, and some, I've seen it and it can be okay. And, and it's and it's nice to have. And, and there's newer tools that sort of help do that. Um, you know, like these uh, reconfigurable uh, database kind of table, table databases that you can visually show in different ways. But I like just bringing things, and I think Patrick would agree, like how much you can bring things more tangibly and do it, like you said, in that social procedural way. So, you know, it isn't just about, say, doing a storyboard, but if you're doing a storyboard, how are you socializing that? So, you know, we've seen, I've worked with a financial services company pre-Capital One, um, and they were rethinking their whole, the, the whole suite of tools that, um, reimagining the whole suite of tools that their call center reps used. And in order to help other people understand what they were doing, both the magnitude it would be, it would have and the impact it would have, you know, during one time it's a large organization and they have thousands of people uh, going through their hallways. And so they put a place in a pro- high traffic area and essentially set up a booth and they had a large screen uh, monitor that had like hmm. a narrative story, you know, it was kind of a, you know, screen to screen, but it was taking some persona and saying, oh, this person did this. And then this is what happened when they called and to our earlier point, it sort of took it into this larger journey of, you know, uh, doing a auto claim, you know, but then, you know, understanding what happened to generate that. And they had a poster, a poster size um, graphic of what the interface was going to be. And it was annotated. So people were coming by that were not in the call center and they were asking questions and they were learning about it. So they they sort of brought this out and they had you know, posted empathy quotes, the things that were sort of generating what these new solutions and features were going to be. And if we produce storyboards, we often don't just produce that narrative, the storyboard will um, identify like, okay, in this panel, this is the actual opportunity that we're addressing. And of course, and this opportunity came from an insight and that insight came from this research. And so it is sort of saying like, if you have a suite of artifacts that we hope you use as tools, whether those are ecosystem maps and journey maps and eventually storyboards, they sort of have something baked in that ties to where they came from before so Mm -hmm. that there is sort of that breadcrumb. uh, I think Patrick referred to it as that breadcrumb trail. So the more you can bring it to life in in that more like instance anecdotal way, it's not going to be a master repository, but if there's, but if whatever it is, points to something else. An experience map will point to a, a pain point or an opportunity that will later be leveraged. A storyboard will identify what opportunity is being addressed through this like you know new magical solution in that panel. And then all of a sudden these things actually um, have a string that's connecting them um, down to where you got that insight. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know, when uh, storyboards up on the walls or, or a booth with video playing and, on monitors and, th- and things like that. It, it is essentially like you're doing this relentless internal marketing. And, and what you guys are saying is like you're, you do the marketing, just make sure that it ties back to substance. Yes. And, and, in, and I think that's one thing we've found through our individual work and, and definitely an adaptive path. We, felt that uh, you know the ability for strong information and communication design to tell these stories um, you know along with just good storytelling um, is what helps cut through a lot of the corporate noise and data um, that people are drowning in and uh, and you know it's interesting to work with companies and clients who go through a learning curve of wondering why there are people, um, on the team that are helping tell those stories until they start getting funding 
and seeing, oh, um, now I understand why you are documenting and, and working on these things um, and recommending that we spend time on making some things that I'm not quite sure why we're doing it yet. Um, but it, it helps them communicate better up and down and sideways. And, and in most organizations, you know, the best story wins and um, funding follows that. So um, to me, if you're at the very top of the chain, having everyone align around a clear intent that that storytelling is really critical. And then if you're in a large organization and it's uh, it should be a, a marketplace for ideas to some degree, um, then uh, connecting the dots, working better with your colleagues and telling good stories about why a possible future is the right one to march towards is, is can really help people, you know, get the support and funding behind behind their ideas. Mm, and it always does come back to funding, doesn't it? That, that's the, that's kind of leads me to where I was going, where a lot of this stuff is really, really effective when it comes top down. When, you know, the North star is that is a unified user experience that's being uh, preached over and over again by the CEO of the company or the executive leader team, leadership team. Uh, but that's, very seldom the case in in mo most large large organizations. It's increasingly becoming more and more part of the conversation, but increasing the influence of the user experience team or the design team in such a way that it, it can have kind of cross functional impact. I think and and you know measured by uh, are the projects that are being generated or the or the changes or the solutions or whatever that the UX team is is developing are those being funded? Like it it does come back to how do we how do we generate more and more influence in this organization? Yeah, we'd like to see a lot of bottom up. I'm not to co-opt uh, a Silicon Valley reference, but I feel like in in my experience when it's been done really well and started to get traction. I, I, I called it middle out because it's usually somehow like some, what you would typically call, it kind of sounds bad, but like that, that middle level of, of people who are like managers and directors. They're not from the top down, you know, the execs and VPs that are ultimately accountable for the funding. Um, and you like to see like individual, individual contributor designers that start to do this stuff. And we hope that like the book starts to encourage and empower, uh, you know, those individual contributors to start connecting it. But I've often seen when it gets traction, is it's, it's sort of that manager and director layer that somehow gets a little bit of a budget or a little bit of leeway to do a small thing. But that small thing might be able to prove out like let's, you know, do a different type of customer research and partner with another uh, functional group and create, um, you know, map the ecosystem and create uh, a model of the journey so that we can understand it better or something like that. And then if they prove that out, they might get a little larger bit or they might be able to collaborate with a, another, another um, uh, partner like in, in the organization. And, and they you can usually get buy-in that way versus it being uh, top down, but it, it, it's a slow build, but it can build traction over like a year or 18 months to get uh, larger and larger projects. And often what can be hard is the money itself may not be the problem, like funding to do the work. It's how the money gets attributed in organizations because so much of what this is is cross-functional, mm -hmm. collaborative. And so everyone sort of has a budget for their silo. And so the moment you might do an initiative that is partnering or leveraging another part of the organization 
are you paying for that or are you co- you know co-paying for that um so getting the budget is one thing i've kind of found that if you can prove some stuff out you can and you can get that budget but almost one of the harder things is really more about even if the money's there you know how that money is allocated because you know if you do something that really is about sort of an experience that traverses different channels, different, you know, uh, company silos, then the question isn't whether we have the money to pay for it. It's like who though is actually paying for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let me, let me change the, the, or turn the tables a little bit and say, you know, you work for a much smaller company now and what, what can companies, you know, that are 20 or 40 people, but expect to be a hundred or 200 people soon, what can they do to put the principles in place at the beginning rather than finding themselves at scale and having to try to figure this stuff out in retrospect? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's one I'm still kind of learning. I mean, I had worked from a consultancy side with, with smaller companies. And I, as an individual contributor, I had worked with smaller companies and startups before. But in, in, in thinking about this, the, the risk when you're a small company and you are all in the same bullpen, so to speak, um, you know, cross functions, and you can have these conversations is to not put things in place so that you can ease into that growth when it becomes harder to have those hallway conversations and when it's harder to really think about who's paying for what from a budget standpoint. Um, so it's hard, it's easy to neglect uh, sort of the, these processes and procedures, the things like um, formalizing the research and thinking about tool, you know, instead of just having a conversation, thinking about a facilitated session where we're actually using one of these tools, like a, an experience map to identify these things kind of in a, a bit of a formal process. You don't want to make things bureaucratic, but, but then all of a sudden when you're larger and you don't have these in place, it's a lot more painful to, to put them into place, to think about how you carve out the time and the space to, to do this sort of cross-functional collaboration because it's so easy when it's six stakeholders in a room that are, you know, literally sitting next to each other and, um, and, and have a whiteboard next to them. So I think one of the things is to not think about your process until you actually have to, until you're feeling the pain of not having some sort of uh, process to go through this uh, collaboration to think about your, your end to end journey um, to just have let it, you know, start with just, you know, conversations that happen and it's fine because we're all in the same room and we are, we know each other and we're all on the same page so we can go and execute, um, you know, in through our different channels. So I think that's one of the bigger risks when you're small is you may not need some of it, you know, from a pain point, like, well, how are we getting a handle on all these moving parts? But you will eventually, if you're successful and grow. So put that stuff in place now, um, so that it eases and grows with you, uh, when you, when you, when you really do want to have those, those pieces in place. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That, that, that's aligned with a, a lot of what I tell our founders that, that, that I work with, which is all of them. I can ask them, you know, I can ask, say, who, who are you going to hire? What's your hiring plan for the next 12 or 18 months? And they generally have worked all that out. You know, they have a sense of, well, you know, we know what parts of the experience that we want to build. And these are the people that we're going to take and do. And, and, and that is laying down the foundations for the company that they will become because those people will turn into departments, right? Uh, when you're that early in an organization. Exactly. And, and doing that, like right at the very beginning of the company, when it's just taking off, doing the work of figuring out that broader journey 
that their customers are going to go through and then hiring against the journey as opposed to against the competencies is, is a way of like setting up an organizational structure that they can grow into that will um, map very well to the kind of cohesiveness that we have been talking about this whole, this whole podcast. Yeah, and I'll, I'll highlight one more thing that ties back to what you had talked, what, what Patrick had, had um, talked about earlier about you know that Zoom. I mean, we can sit there and in the weeds as a startup that just want to get this thing done and think about the thing is this trip you have in this car. When really, what we have to keep in mind that when you're a startup, it, it, it sometimes can actually be harder to do than when you're a big company and you really have to look at like how you integrate someone's life. It isn't about that trip with that car. It's about that great weekend day trip to Napa yeah. or to Tahoe, right? And then the car is really just this one element in that journey. And I think it can be easy because you're so focused and so tactical as a startup to not have pre-baked that point of view, that it is it is about that, that wider journey in which you play a role, hopefully a very important role, versus it being just about your product or service. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, guys, it's a fantastic conversation. Um, I'm going to encourage everybody uh, to have a look at this book that you have written. We have barely scratched the surface of what you guys are talking about uh, with all the techniques and mapping and, and everything else. Uh, I just think it's a wonderful resource. So thanks for writing that. Uh, I will put Thank a link you. to it uh, in the show notes uh, and a couple of links to uh, where we can find out more about what you guys are up to and, and all of that. So um, I encourage people to, to look it up in their podcast player and, and, and see what's going on there. Uh, Chris, Patrick, I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for, thanks for the time. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks for having us. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.